Welcome to Invest Stories, a podcast about real stories, real estate, and taking real action. Join hosts John Cooper and Kyle Robertson as they talk investing, mindset, and taking that first step. We all have a story. What's yours? The Invest Stories Podcast. Can you hear my daughter shouting? <laughs> That's the intro. <laughs> That was a great intro. You should have welcome you should bring to, her over. What she was saying in two and a half year old speak is welcome to the Investories podcast. I'm your host, John Hooper. With me. Hey, it's Kyle Robertson. Hey, Kyle Robertson. What's up, John Hooper? How, how's it? You've been educating people this week. I have, yeah. I got to spend nice. a weekend in Portland. Uh, they, I guess I must have done okay the first go around. They invited me back this year to, to speak. Uh, just kind of tell my story and discuss some multifamily investing. So I did that on Saturday or Friday and Saturday. So yeah, it was a lot of fun. Very cool. Very cool. I went on a steam train. A steam train? I didn't realize there was such a for, thing anymore. For children, to be fair. Oh. Okay. And I didn't go on my own. I took I took the little one. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> so yeah, that was that was fun, but not not so much on the real estate educational piece. So yeah, that's interesting. All right. You gotta you gotta still yeah. have fun, right? Come on. Sure. It wasn't fun. The, the, the uh, conference? Oh, the conference was a blast. I was talking about your. <laughs> I was talking about your. <laughs> always good, always good. Yeah, but obviously now I have that mindset. Whenever I drive around anywhere, I'm like, oh, wonder how, wonder what that building's about. Yeah, right. <laughs> We've all got that. Um, so who have we got on today? We've got Travis Balcom, and Travis is a great guy. Uh, I've known Travis for I guess you know, going on a year now. I'm pretty close to it anyway. And uh, he's a he's a storage unit kingpin these days. He's doing some infill stuff, uh, purchasing as is or uh, in place storage units already. And uh, he's got a really interesting story because I mean the guy built a, a very large fix and flip business and um, ran into some real headwinds a couple of times, not just once but twice. And uh, he does a great job in kind of running everybody through what it was like to build a big business like that, realizing oh crap I'm in trouble, and pivoting and. Um, really sticking to his laurels about you know, paying back investors, making sure making everybody whole, and just being that mm-hmm. good that good investor who maintains their integrity because that's really all we have in this business is our integrity and our and our reputation. And and he really he hammers home some really good lessons for everybody on that. There's there's often a candidness to our guests, and we we like it the best when when guests come on and be open and talk and share their experiences and. We really got that from this this conversation. I think the other thing we really got is there's a real masterclass in self self storage. If you're looking into self storage, you know the the back end of this conversation has the the kind of rule of thumb to to take a deal, analyze it, kind of make start making decisions on it. So um, really worth sticking around for that as well. Um, and hey, how how do you guys like investories? Because we're thinking of changing it. Uh, no, that sounds dramatic, right? Kyle? We want to retool a little bit. Um, so get in touch and let us know what we what you like, what you want to hear more of. If there's specific subjects or guests or a topic, or you want to come on and ask questions, do you have any questions for Kyle? We haven't done that for a while. Mm, it's true. Um, and even even the stuff just to interrupt you, John. But how about the sure. stuff you don't like? You know, if there, yeah. th- those are the things that, that constructive criticism is what we like to hear the most because it allows us to, to pivot to different things that, that, that our listeners really want to hear. And if you don't like the types of questions we ask, if you don't like all the origin stories, you want to get into something, you know, really dig into a topic, a specific topic a lot more than we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. And if you don't like the hosts. Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> tough. Yeah. <laughs> tough. <laughs> tough. Anyway, um, 
you know, check us out. Um, if you want to get in touch, investoriespodcast at gmail.com, um, investoriespod on Instagram. Reach out, say hi. Uh, links are all in the show notes. And without further ado, here's Travis. All right, everybody, here we are on the Investories podcast. I am Kyle Robertson and the host, John Hooper, over here with me. And we are welcoming Mr. Travis Balcom. Thank you for coming on, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, so I know Travis from, well, man, when did we have a, the, the, the Maui Mastermind? That was back in September or was it August? It was at the I end of remember. August. So we met in August, but the next day it was September. That, uh, oh, that's right. <laughs> end of August. Okay, I got you. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was precise. Yeah, well, it was ama- it was amazing, and, and I got to know Travis pretty well over the what was it five days that we were there. And Travis has got a super interesting story. Everything from you know fix and flips to storage units to ground up developments to near bankruptcy on more than one occasion, and and just some really cool stuff. So uh, Travis, we really appreciate you appreciate you being here. So. Um, you know, I guess we can kick things off by, if you wouldn't mind, just kind of giving us the the cliff notes of maybe your backstory and and because you've you've had a hell of a journey in real estate, kind of the ups and the downs and whatnot. So give us a give us all of our listeners kind of the once over. Yeah, sure. So uh, eleven years ago in August of 2012, I bought my first house. Um, before that, I was I was just completely miserable. I had read so many books on river or real estate investing. I read. Um, I'd met so many people. I had a, actually had a job in Dallas where I was like selling products to real estate investors and I would take the company card out and, you know, ask them all these questions about how do you flip houses, this sort of thing on the company. And uh, like I, I wouldn't have to pay for it. And so I was getting free advice and a meal out of it. And so we moved to a smaller town in Texas and I, uh, I was on unemployment and my wife was a nurse and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I sure remember telling her like, "Hey, we have twenty five hundred bucks in the bank account. Like, if if if, thing, if we lost everything, it would be twenty five hundred bucks. So we don't have a lot to lose. And so uh, I I think I'm gonna buy this house. I met with this guy. He connected me with his banker. Banker said, "Yeah, we can do that. Given that you met, mentioned this person's name, real small town, he goes, we can f- fund the entire thing. We'll fund the purchase and we'll also fund the re- the renovations." As long as it appraises for more than those two things are appraised for more than eighty percent, or for less than eighty percent of what the house value is, so I was like, okay, that's great because I don't really have any money to put down, and so because uh, I only have that twenty five hundred bucks. So that first house we bought, um, I paid forty grand for it, and I had a renovation of twelve grand, and that wasn't enough to actually hire anybody. I had to do all the work myself, which I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't even know how to paint really, kind of knew how to just do this, but not really like do it professionally in a way that looks good and uh, how to set toilets, how to lay tile, all that stuff. Um, but when the first day I closed on it, I put the put a for rent sign on there and it was amazing. That's all I did. Nothing online, nothing other than my cell phone number on a for rent side. And I got tons of calls, so many calls that I was like, it was getting in the way of working. And then um, I rented it out before it was done. I rented it out before my first mortgage payment, which was great because it has previously mentioned I didn't have any cash and so they paid my mortgage payment and I just remember the the when I was looking at the um, application they made more money than my wife and I but I owned the house and they were going to be paying me almost 30% of their um, income uh, just to live in this house which I did not think was a nice house I was trying to make it as nice as possible but man it's like you know you 
for $800 a month, you can't make it very nice. <laughs> you just, you, there's things that you can't do. You got to leave the old stove. You got to leave the old fridge. Um, the, you know, you got to put down sticky tile as opposed to nice porcelain tile, that sort of thing. So I knew I had something. And at that point, I was making, so the net on that was like 300 bucks a month. And I was still on unemployment. And uh, given that I still didn't have a job, I was like, well, I'll just kind of milk the unemployment check until it g goes away, which I think I had in the six months. I was like, so then I ended up just going, okay, well, I think I can flip this other house in another part of town. And, uh, and the mortgage payment will be, be like 500 and I make 300 from this comp from, for, from this rental that'll just pay for this mortgage or this mortgage for the, uh, for the flip. And then I'll like, then I, when I, when I like flip the house, if it's like a 20,000 or if it's like a $2,000 payment or sorry, that's a $2,000 bill to like a plumber, I'll charge, I'll tell the bank it was 2,200 and the other 200 bucks, I'll just take care of it, which is kind of shady. And I probably shouldn't have done that, but that's how I did it. And, and sure enough, man, I got that done and I listed it. And, uh, and I sold it, made 22 grand. I was like, I think I'm figuring this thing, this whole thing out. And so I can continue to go, but I figured there's probably some more. Don't you love real estate though? A ton I mean, of stuff. It's so, funny. It's, it's so funny hearing you, you talk about it. You know, you, you get your first tenant, you're on unemployment and you bought this house just cause the bank kind of threw you a bone. And then you see the information on this tenant and they make more money than you do, but they are, you are now providing them housing, you know, it's, yes. it's just incredible. And, you know, did you know anything about, you know, creative financing and things of that nature back then? Or was this more or less just, you know, cause the way that I started was, all right, you buy real estate. I don't have that much cash. I'm going to go to a bank, you know, and, and that's, is that kind of the way that you started also? Yeah. And I, I took an intensive weekend. Um, like there's a, like in Dallas, there was a weekend. If you paid $500, which I negotiated that I go, Hey, I'd like to come and I called them. And I was like, Hey, I'd like to come to your thing this weekend, but I only have 250 bucks. So can I, can I just come and pay you guys that I'll pay it to you right now. But, but can I just come this weekend and do that? And, and so like I drove to Dallas and they were like, yes, thankfully, and, uh, and I, and it was like two days of like, this is how you rent out a house. This is how you renovate it. This is how you do all, it was basically an intensive on, on real estate investing. And it was legitimate stuff that w I would say anyone should go to. And, uh, and I think I, I think I had to stay with my in-laws or something. I didn't have enough money to stay at a hotel or maybe I drove all the way back and then drove. I can't remember, but it was like a two hour away at two hour distance from where I lived. And, uh, and that's, yeah. And so I, I knew enough about like the skeleton of how to do it, and I'd read enough books about how to do it. And then I was like, well, I think I should probably just try it. If it doesn't work, I, I don't have a lot of money to lose here. So we own a house, we own a personal house we can live in forever, and I can file bankruptcy or whatever and be fine. And so, uh, but no, I didn't know anything about like creative, how to buy a house. At that time, I did not know how to buy a house on like owner finance terms or anything like that. And so, um, that's never really worked well for me. I, I've only done that like two or three times, and I kind of wish I'd never, I, I hadn't the few times that I did it. Um, with storage facilities, yeah, I, I, I like think I would do this. it. So, um, but like we're actually all of our, at this point in May of 2023, all of the off, off, offers that we're making with storage facilities are seller finance offers. So, because no, nothing breaks <laughs> eight and a quarter percent interest rates. So, it's how the world changes, multifamily. right? Multifamily is exactly the same. It's, yeah. <laughs> I was having a long conversation today about that very thing. So, yeah. I think what's really interesting is that that piece of, of the kind of uh, investing in your education and like the 
the fundamentals right i'm i'm guilty of it jumping on youtube and googling complex things it's like do you know the fundamentals of buying a place renting it out getting good tenants and managing that process um in in terms of your i guess in terms of seeing these opportunities and kind of building that i I feel like real estate takes a hardened mindset what does what's that look like over the years to get to that point where you're like right i'm just going to go and do this and figure it all out and kind of keep going yeah man well you know i graduated high college in 2008 and i had a job i could have made a sales job i could have easily made 100 grand on and i just was like i could not get out of out of bed and so i was like i'm just gonna quit this job and at the time there this is back in 2008 at the time there's all these retail stores going out of business so i was like oh look like 27 coffee mates made you know uh you know coffee makers like i bet i could sell those on ebay let's see how much they're going on ebay and that was before the iphone so you would go or that was before i had an iphone and so i would go home and be like googling you know with my computer like oh yeah all right so i can sell this coffee mate there for 38 bucks you go buy and you buy them for 27 dollars. you sell them you try you make a make 200 dollars to sell all those you know, coffee mates. And so that was more enjoyable than working and getting a standard paycheck. But unfortunately, it wasn't paying the bills. And so I went to go work for a buddy. And then that didn't work out because I was working for a buddy. And and then ultimately, that uh, turned into another kind of side business that worked a little bit. And that just kind of navigated my real boring story, but I navigated my way to working for a legitimate construction company. Um, you know, and, and then that's, um, Working for that, I was like, finally, I made it. And like, I remember telling a mentor, I'm like, I found what I was going to do. They wanted to put me on a GM track, a general manager track. And this is going to be great. I'll make like, general managers can make quarter million dollars. This is great. You know, and did that for 14 months. And my boss got fired. His boss's boss quit. His boss's boss got fired. His, the, the CEO was let go. And I'm like, no one knows me now. And this entire executive level of, of uh, you know, leadership here and so like everyone they brought in was like we don't like what travis is doing and i was i just remember i remember telling my wife i'm like i have 90 days to uh find another job because i'm gonna be fired and and sure enough that's how i was on on unemployment is 92 days after i said that to my wife i got fired and uh and and so for me it was like i'm never going to get fired again like the the complete uh, embarrassment and the shame and the guilt and the anger and the bitterness from from taking a company from four million dollars to twelve million and be like this is my baby like this is it and then be like oh no it was just a job like this is done you all are the sacrifice all the stress all the late nights the five a.m.s like I would I would wake up at five a.m. and start planning my routes to go talk to home builders and then I would still I'd come home at five p.m. And then I would spend another four hours like putting in bids and proposals because I just wanted to be the best. So like we're talking about a 14-hour day and then I just get canned one day because someone didn't like something I said. And I was like, this is never going to happen. If I put in an hour worth of work, I'm going to get an hour I – mean, I'm going to get an exponential amount of return because I'm never going just to let someone pay, pay me to work. I'm going to work with equity. And so I was just – you know, when we moved to Waco where I live now – um, like I was like, I was getting job offers from good people, but I'm like, I just don't, just can't do it. And so yeah. I was like, just let me, so I got my real estate license and I started, I bought that house around the same time and I was like, this will be fine. <laughs> and so, and the crazy thing is like a real estate license, you have to hang at a, a, a with a broker. And so that was like a job, like you were you basically working to make the money and it was, you know, like, so for me, it was like, I'm getting out of this. I'm just going to work for myself. Like if I want to 
for if I'm going to put the effort in, 100% of the reward is going to be mine, and I'm not going to worry you know, worry about it moving forward. So that's that was my decision of like, I'm a bad employee. It's clear clear. I'm also kind of a bad real estate agent because I I kind of get annoyed that people just want to make emotional decisions to help me make a commission, and I'm kind of getting tired. I'm getting <laughs> low on cash here. That I was like, I need to. Um, you know, I need. To, I just need to go full full send on the uh, the development slash house flipping house slash house renovating uh, row role, and I, I'm glad I did. It's not been an easy cakewalk, but it's been so much more enjoyable uh, yeah. than if I had a cube job or if I was working for that company I work for in Dallas. So what was your uh, what was your degree in? You said you graduated from college. What yeah, did you degree I, in? I got a degree. It's uh, it's perfect for what I'm doing. It's an anthropology. Oh, no way. Anthropology. Yeah. And I was, I took a bunch of anthropology classes in college and <laughs> loved it. Honestly, I, I, probably could, I probably could have got a degree in anthropology. Um, yeah, I was, was just, a, I was a lot first, of fun. Yeah, that's great. Pretty much it. Yeah, I was a first generation college student. So my parents are like, what are you studying? Like, Same. okay, that's fine. Yeah. You yeah, know, it, it ends in OG, so you know it must be something where you make a lot of money, right? I mean, yeah, I don't, I actually don't think, other than teaching anthropology, I don't think there's a way to make money in anthropology. Right. I, paleontologists, but those are also professors that are going and digging dinosaur, dinosaur bones out of the ground. So, yeah, unless it's one of the in the medical field, the OGs are like, uh, you got to be a scientist or something like that. You know, it's that's yeah. not really. You and can't I, just I, rock up with any degree, right, Kyle? Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Yeah. Well, I like talking about people that I like talking to. people people about their college journey just because it's it's funny especially when you get into the, the real estate side of things like I have a college degree also and I don't use it not anymore anyways I did for a while and it's just interesting what do you feel like you could have done with that money if you had actually not even gone to college in the first place did you have the mindset of being an entrepreneur while you were going to college or was this just something where you were fed up with the corporate world you were like you know what screw this I'm gonna yeah. I'm gonna go off on my own yeah I didn't know it was called the back then there wasn't you know seven million podcasts and you know youtube and all that so like it was i definitely had the entrepreneur bug and i would i would do things like in high school like instead of having a job i would uh i would like i would uh, make hemp necklaces and sell them to my friends or like uh you know like lead worship at like different churches to make money <laughs> so you get 50 bucks there like wash this is that my you know at the church cafeteria or whatever small town that's pretty much all you had to do is church stuff and so um so it was like uh yeah i would do these like odd and end jobs just to make a good amount of money and then I'd be like all right cool well, i can i can spin it but yeah I, I would say i was definitely entrepreneur i would buy a 12 12 uh, i would buy a dozen donuts this is my senior year of high school a dozen donuts bring them to the um i would eat two and then and it was four dollars and 25 cents for that dozen which is crazy what Donut inflation is outrageous, man. Oh, don't get me and started. So, <laughs> so, so like, well, I'm, now we're at the real heart of the story. <laughs> I would pay, I would buy a dozen donuts and then uh, eat two of them. Normally two chocolate ones. Those are my favorites. Still today, my favorite. And then um, I would sell the other ten away for a dollar each. So I'd make like enough money to buy uh, lunch that day. And so uh, I'd make ten bucks. Cost of goods is four twenty-five or whatever. So I'd put that for tomorrow's uh, donut purchase. And uh, I had like six bucks to go buy a couple of bean and cheese burritos at the taco shop. I was super excited for that. And so that's basically what I would do. And my parents would give me four bucks 
for for lunch too. So I would, you know, I was like, you know, making like fourteen dollars a day doing nothing but enjoying and giving the giving everyone uh, in the high school like everyone that wanted to pay me a dollar, you know, the happiness of a donut, and and I thought that was great. And so, um, but as far as like the money I use, I, I would say with my degree. Um, it taught me how to read people, and I would also say those that have a liberal arts degree tend to be able to think outside of the box. And the people who have engineering, accounting, um, construction management, all those like more like rigid, uh, rigid you know degrees, those people work for us. And so uh, we need the liberal arts majors. We need the liberal um, liberal arts or liberal thinkers. I guess liberal in the term of you know creativity that sort of thing the artistic expression in order for the world to really churn because, but if it was just for us, it would be chaos. And that's why we need the integrators, the construction managers, that sort of thing. So I think it all kind of gels. I used to be like, man, I should have never gone to college, but if I wouldn't have gone to college, I wouldn't have worked for my, my boss who I did landscaping and I was getting paid a lot of money doing landscaping. I was like, I'm just gonna work my butt off here. And, uh, and he kind of saw that I was working really hard to get, he would say stuff. He's like, "Man, I've never been able to teach a white man how to use a weed eater before." You know, sort of thing. <laughs> he's like, "Well, I just really want to impress you. Really, really appreciate the job." Sort of thing. And then, and then he gave me a really old copy of uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. It was like, you know, things are cracking. The cover was cracking. Everything. And I just kind of sat on the shelf. I'm like, "Whatever, man. I'm gonna want to do that." And then I heard somebody. I can't remember who it was. I think it was Gary Keller talk about Rich Dad Poor Dad. Gary Keller or Keller Williams. Talk about Rich Dad Poor Dad. I was like, I remember having that book somewhere, and I found it, and I just read all of it, like in like a, I think a week or two. And I'm like, my life has changed. Like this, I'll never have a job ever. And yeah. so, um, if it wasn't for college, I would have never found that, met that guy, and and then I would have never read the book, or I'm sure it would have taken me a lot longer to read the book, and maybe I wouldn't have found the book. And so, um, I really am thankful for my college experience for that. But yeah, actual studying, the degree I got in, not really practical or useful i think it just helped me think a little bit i think it helped me write uh and uh, think abstractly uh, more than it would have if i wouldn't have gone to college but yeah it should have never cost it cost me 48 grand it's cost people now 160 grand and they're making even yeah. less money so i think i think that, i wouldn't say it's a, a, a like a farce or like a criminal act but i would say that there's no way in hell it should be cost it, it, there's no way in Hell, it should cost what it's costing for a kid to go get an education in America today. That's just there's a value piece right to it now, which is you really have to weigh up that value. Right, right. Um, that's fascinating about Rich Dad Poor Dad. We've had that so many times come up as like the book. I, I was thinking about it this weekend, which was it's almost like it unlocks a door and the book it, you go through the door and read the book. And when you come out the other side, it's like, oh, I've just changed my whole perspective. I'm in a whole nother room. That's kind of how I, I think I saw it um, when, I, when I was diving into that. So in terms of then from Rich Dad, Poor Dad to kind of absorption of everything else, is there kind of like, did you just go to conferences, consume as much as you could? Or did you kind of, were you quite deliberate on what you were focusing on? I guess it depends on the time frame. I, I think I started realizing that I had something around, around 2013. And I was like, well, hey, if I've made money on these three properties, I can probably make money on like four or five properties at a time. And there was some truth to that. But another thought I had was like, if I just do a bigger property, if I can make 20% net yield on a, a $115,000 house and make twenty two grand, 
then I can make a 20% net yield on a million dollar property and make 200 grand. And that is so much more money than 20 grand. And so why don't I just go do that? Dallas isn't that far. There's million dollar properties in Dallas all the time. So I ended up, um, I ended up flipping or I ended up buying a house in Dallas. I brought, I got my first investor and <laughs> this is not how you do this, but this is how I did. I was, I'll give you half of the profits and I'll also pay you 12% interest. So basically I did a 12 pref and gave him 50% of the equity, but I took all the risk. Like I took oh all. God, are you looking for any more investors or? Yeah, uh... no, dude, yeah that's, that's, you know, that's called a recipe for uh, having to pay someone back for three years. That's, yeah. that's what that is. So, so I bought this house and, and I paid 300 grand, shouldn't have paid 300 grand. I picked the wrong architect. He basically put a new house on top of the old house, but we were using the old house as skeleton. We should have used someone that knew how to like you take a, take a 1930 house and kind of build into it and add square feet and do a good solid addition. But I, he was cheap and that's all I could afford. And so, um, $475,000 renovation later, that was only supposed to cost 200 grand. Uh, we listed it and was like, man, I hope there's going to be a, a quick sell. Well, one thing I didn't notice is behind it was I did notice it. I just chose not to pay attention to it was a classy multifamily apartment complex that was so ratty that someone who wanted to live in a million dollar home didn't want to live close to that thing. Um, and so we listed it for 950 grand, no, no offers. Uh, every house in the area went under contract within three days uh, for the duration of me owning it. And that one didn't, and it took over 230 days to get under contract and got under contract at a net profit of me for 646,000, I believe. And my cost was 828,000. And so, uh, I didn't have the cash for that, and that was probably one of the darker times of my life because every day I knew I was over budget, kind of I would say four months in, but I had another six months left as construction work, and so I was just trying to make it. So every time we had a surprise, it was just like a panic attack and overwhelmed, and ultimately I was swimming in a lake that I had no business to swim in. You know, I was I was I swam really good laps in the hundred to two hundred thousand dollar range, but in the $900,000 range, I had no idea that as pretentious and picky those buyers would be. And so I lost wow. 230,000 bucks on that. I lost 78,000 of my own money. And then I lost $157,000 of, of my partner's money who he was like my best, he's still my best friend or one of my closest friends. We don't, uh, but for three years we didn't talk <laughs> because, because yeah. it took me three years to get it back. And, and I realized I'm like, I, at that point, that's when I was like, I'm completely broke. I can either pay him back. I'm sorry. I can either file bankruptcy or I can figure out how to pay him back. And that's when I realized, like, I just got to be a better way to buy houses in the way I've been buying them. And that's when I discovered direct mail and how to really uh, analyze your 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 marketing metrics, your uh, key performance indicators or KPIs. And that's when I started. Uh, uh, I, like a guy showed me how to do it. I was like, all right, well, I'm gonna spend two grand. Well, two grand would give me one house. So he was like, well, if two grand gives you one house, that means if you spend four grand, you're going to get two houses. I'm like, are you sure? It sounds way too simple. He goes, just try it. So um, I was like, well, I want to buy three, three, three houses a month. So I started spending six grand a month on marketing. That was in January of 2015. By April, I was consistently buying five to seven houses a month. And that lasted from June, uh, April of 2015 to when I just decided to stop which was in um, October of 2020, sorry, October of 2018. 
And in, in between that time, we ended up buying about 400 houses. I was able to pay Forrest, my partner, back. And we started talking again <laughs> as friends. And uh, and then we just, we were, you know, I took I took what was like a really, really, really bad situation. And I turned it into something that provided five other people jobs. And we bought tons of houses in the, the McLennan County area. And, uh, and that's, that's, yeah. So I'm curious, the, the payback when you paid your buddy back, I mean, cause you, that doesn't happen a lot, right? I mean, a good investor will do exactly what you did. That makes you a good investor in my mm-hmm. opinion, because you take care of your lenders, you take care of your partners. Um, I I've got a handful of people in my circle right now who are experiencing exactly what you described, but it was due to the market downturn, thanks to interest rates. And, um, so it took you a couple, two, three years to get that money back, but did he know it was coming or did you just show up one day and be like, Hey, here's your $170,000 or whatever the amount was. Definitely not. What what was it? What was that like? (laughs) It was was quite painful. Like we negotiated, we were softly negotiating with attorneys. Like I was like, Oh, I'm broke. I can't pay you. Did you not realize I just lost a quarter million dollars? I don't have your money. He goes, well, you guaranteed it. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, we were going back and forth and eventually like, I was like, I was like, I, like he was being so soft with his attorney's responses. Like stuff, like, like, I'm like, I'm pretty sure the attorney didn't recommend him to say that or do that. And so essentially what happened is I told him, like I started, cause I started having traction. I was like, I'm like, I think I can get it back to him. And once I had some hope, that's when I'm like, I can be a man of my word. It wasn't that I didn't want to be a man of my word. It was like, I'm like not a man of my word and I'm also broke. I don't know how to get out of this. I don't have anything going for me here. Um, when I, when I, uh, when I realized I started having hope, I'm like, there's more houses, there's profit to be made here. That's when I was like, I can get it back. I can get it back. Cause he's a friend of mine. I wanted to pay him back. And so essentially we agreed to, if I could, I knew he was such a savvy investor. If I could give him the bulk majority of his principal back within a certain time period, uh, he would forgive the rest. He'd forgive the, the interest payments, that sort of thing, which was the actual bulk majority was somewhere around $125,000, but the 157 was like interest payments, that sort of thing. So I was like, well, maybe if I can just give him a hundred grand back, he can forgive the rest. Cause that, and, and that will give me something to, to aspire to, to hope for that sort of thing. So I basically, I said like, Hey, I'll give you five grand back a month. I'll pay five. I'll, I'll, my minimum payment can be wall street journal prime plus zero. So it was like four and a quarter at the time, I think. Um, so it was like a four hundred twenty-five dollar payment, and then I, this, then I started phoning five grand when I ever like had it, and then when I realized I had, I had to make five grand payments for the next eighteen months to pay in full. That's when I was like, all right, we're going full spin here. We need five grand, five grand, five grand, and he got it back. And it ended up later. He we had coffee after not talking. He goes, dude, that was the biggest blessing of my life because he was going through some personal change challenges in his life. And he wasn't able to buy any real estate or do any other, other, uh, be a broker or anything because of certain things going on in his life. He's like, that was, he could just know that you committing to paying me back is how I'm here today. And I was, I've been able to make it. So that was a really great story. Um, I would prefer to tell people just, you know, that's a good way to do things, but I would just recommend also not stepping out of your boundary on buying a million dollar property when you're used to buying $200,000 properties. Right. Um, that's, that's, that's what I would prefer to tell you, tell people, but, but, uh, so it, it was, you, 
I love the story. I mean, that's amazing. You talk about overcoming adversity. That's got to be terrifying, you know, to know that you're just losing a quarter million dollars and you, and you have no money. And uh, but you just, you know, slogged through it. And over the next two to three years, you were able to pay that money back and, and keep the integrity, which is huge. Um, so 2018, you said you were doing this until 2018. What changed then? Yeah, I just would like to say before we get into that story, I made a lot of money from, from between there and 2018. OK, things went really well for me. All the yeah. investors got paid. Banks loved me. It was great. In October of 2018, I we had um, we were clicking about 20 houses a month. Uh, we would do, and it got to be where I knew I was I was pushing the system too much, and then I back off. So in May of 2018, I had back surgery, and I was on my bed for a month. And when I came back, I think I'd been gone for four weeks. Zero houses had been purchased, and I was like. We had to buy – guys, by the way, FYI, we have to buy houses to keep this thing going. So I was like, give me the list of all the leads we got last month, and, and then I, I'm going to take the lead – I'm going to take all the calls for here to uh, in, for another month, and then we can worry about the acquisition role. Um, and so yeah, it, I think at that time we didn't have an acquisition guy, and that's what, like the operator was trying to be the acquisition guy at the same time, and he wasn't really an ac acquisition guy. And so I came back. I took the leads. I bought – uh, took the old leads, called all of them, see if they still wanted to sell. And then I, I, then every lead I got, I ended up buying 22 houses that month. And so Travis says, there's an observation there, which is you didn't, you wanted to be irreplaceable and then you were irreplaceable. Yes. And then, <laughs> and that was the challenge, right? Right, right. I, I went home for a month. I'm like, let's just see. It's kind of like the stress test, really. Everything went really well. But when you don't have houses, then of course everything went really well. No one's doing anything. And so, so we bought 22 houses and that was the stress test of me being gone. They made that, but the stress test of me buying 22 houses, uh, crushed, crushed them. And so, um, no one could keep up. We couldn't get crews for the 22 houses we bought. And I was still buying houses. And I was, I was like, I like the acquisition rule. I like this. Let's keep going. And so we ended up buying a ton of homes and it ended up just breaking the system. We ran out of cash. It's not because we were foolish with our cash. It's because we weren't able to dispose of the assets we were buying. We were able to uh, reposition the assets fast enough and to dispose of them as quickly as we needed to. So because of that, that's how we ran out of cash. And so I was looking at the situation I got in and I was like, we have 72 rentals and we were pretty sure the property manager of the 72 rentals were stealing money from us, but we couldn't figure it out. I had gone to some like they were like, we got to replace that vinyl plank. And I'm like, we just laid that vinyl plank nine months ago. Oh, it needs to be replaced. So I'm like, it's vinyl plank. It's plastic. It's like literally the hardest stuff on earth. <laughs> That's why we use it on griddles. I, I like break into a house. Vinyl plank is perfect. I'm like, we have an issue here. How, how long has this been going on? So we had the 70, those 72 houses where we had an issue of rentals and potential theft going on. And then we had 42 renovations going. And so immediately I was like, I was meeting with a construction manager and, uh, I was like, where are we at here? Where are we at here? And he didn't have good data on anything. I was like, all right, um, you have the car, the truck keys. And I'm like, all right, give them to me. Okay, thank you. You can get out of my office now. Like, it was literally just like that. I'm like, it's clear that he's not doing his job, so why am I paying him for it? And why am I giving him a truck to find it? He's like, I don't have a ride. I'm like, well, you should go Uber or something because you're not going to use my truck. <laughs> right. So that truck's mine. Now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drive it. Um so we ran out of money and I was like, okay, we've got to figure this out. I'm like looking at it. My integrator, who was a good dude, says, I think we need 150 grand. I was like, well, we have 42 houses. We need to sell these houses. 
He goes, well, they're not ready to sell. And that's when I, th that's when I met with the gener the construction guy and realized we were having an issue. So I go, um, so we went reconvene. This is all within like a three hour time. I, I reconvene. I go, you find, uh, you figure out how we're going to pay the 150 K back. I'll go get it. And that was me going, I need an hour alone to figure out what's going on. So I looked at all the data I knew. Thankfully, I knew every street and what they, what the renovation was and what we could sell it for. And I'm like, we're not going to be able to do this without, with staff. Like I can't do it with a $40,000 a month, uh, bank, bankroll or, you know, pay up payroll. So I just came back. I was like, Hey, I'm going to close my business. Uh, it's not an operator. This I was like, we're going to close the business. I'll tell the girls by, or I'll tell the girls that we're, we're closing up. I need you to go talk to these two people and, and say we're, we're done. And then just go hang, just go tell your wife because we were pretty good friends at that point. And so I let them all go. I took all my, all my documents and everything we need, all the extru all the crucial documents. I took them home to my, my house and I started a 28 month process of unwinding that crap. And so, um, primary, the hardest one was getting rid of the rentals because the, the, uh, stealing property manager was uh, heavy handing the contract. So he was like, if we sold it and he knew about it, we had to pay him 6% which was like crush, crushing our, our, our margins and it wasn't helping us. So we were like, we had to terminate it, wait 30 days to close. We didn't really have 30 days to close. Um, same time we listed, I had like 20, I was a broker, so I listed all of our houses. Uh, every project got listed no matter what. I'm like, I'll sell it to you. I'll sell it in project mode. Uh, and, it, and we were just kind of cl clearing things out. I knew I'd bought it deep enough to get out of it, but I don't know if I had bought deep enough to get out of it fast enough. And so, um, so yeah, we ended up, it took 28 months. Every day was pretty painful. Most a lot, at the beginning, I would say the first two months, first six to eight weeks was like screaming in a pillow, stressful. Um, and then, uh, and then, but eventually like after a year, I remember looking up, I'm like, Oh, it's been, it's October the next year. It's like 2019. Like I made it an entire year without everything falling apart. And, uh, and that's when I realized I'm like, okay, I probably need to figure out something better to do because I had the 2014 loss. I had a couple other like handful like lawsuits in between that we haven't didn't talk about. Then I, I had the huge loss. And then uh, right before the huge loss or the huge debacle in October, 2018, we had a house flood. I'm like, I think I just want to be out of the house business. Like I love real estate. I love the acquisition. I love the wealth accumulation. I love the acquisition side, but I do not like how with the house, you have to have so many spinning plates up in the air and hope that they don't crash before everything crashes. And so that's how we ended up getting in storage. We unwound everything and then we, uh, then we decided like, all right, let's take the same model, the same aggressive nature and let's go after storage. That's awesome. And so it took you, you said 28 months to dispose of all of the houses that you had. So yeah. this was a complete wind down of your, single family fix and flip business. And yeah, were you I, keeping I, any of those houses or were, were these all intended for flips? <laughs> so you didn't 72, want them. 72 of them were rentals. So those were like the ones we kept. And then I had 42 renovations. So whatever that is, 106 uh, properties, we wound down all the way till, um, all the way, all the way to, I own Ford still, but one of them is about to sell. And so, and the reason why I still own Ford is because the bank, uh, never took a loss. That's really important I, for me to say that the bank never took a loss and like, but they would help me out. Like they're like, well, Hey, on this one house at off of chestnut, 
what's what do you need me to sit what do you need me to what's what payoff do you need we can move it over to this other house and they did that for 72 houses and they got ended up getting four houses which were basically underwater but at the same time they were rented so they were paying i was paying the mortgage so it doesn't matter and now dude now dude those things are worth so much more i know <laughs> they're, right? they're not any different and i was gonna say 2019 hit, we right? can't and we can't do that we, i do that all the time i'm constantly looking back like oh shit, what did i well, do dude, I, I can't I believe I sold we, were, this. we were losing money on the on the on the yeah. rentals we were losing money it, everything was good so like for every week i would have a meeting with the bank Every uh, week, I'd, I'd call my two biggest hard money lenders, and th these aren't like institutional grade money lenders. These are like a dude in College Station, a guy in Temple. You know, the guy. I had 28 loans with Jeff in, in College Station. He took zero haircuts. He got all of his. I couldn't pay him monthly because we were out of cash. But when we would sell a house, he would tack on interest payments. He would tack on whatever he needed to get made, get made whole, and he was made whole over 28 houses and then jimmy was also made whole i think he only had seven or eight houses with me but he was made whole jimmy and i just like and this is the reason why you got to pay your investors and make them whole yeah it sucks to do that because you're just hurting and everything's bleeding and you're like i don't want to do this but me and jimmy just finished a five house subdivision like we have our last house in a contract he his contribution was 300 grand and i got the loan he made two hundred and seventy thousand dollars on that three hundred grand, and then I and it was a fifty-fifty split. So I made two hundred seventy thousand dollars as well. And so that is why you always make sure you pay your lenders back and you always pay your banks back, no matter how painful. And if you can't pay them back, you meet with them. And you say, "This is where I'm at, and this is a strategy of how I get I, how I'm going to get out of it." It could be a complete bullshit strategy, but if you're like, "I'm just what I'm going to try," this is what I'm going to try to get out of it. That's that's so much better than you ghosting them because if you ghost them, they're going to foreclose on you every time. And, you, and, then, and then once they foreclose on you, they will never, ever lend you money ever again. 100%. I, I'm, uh, that was a really good segue, I guess, a couple minutes ago anyways, when you started talking about the storage stuff. and Because uh, that's, that's what I know you as. Because when we met, you were super deep into the storage game and had been for a few years by that point. Why did you switch over to storage? Was it just because you didn't want to deal with tenants and, and all the things that come along with a single family house like we just talked about? Is this an easier asset? I, I, I hesitate I, to use I, that word, but. <laughs> yeah, uh, it is totally easier. Absolutely the easiest asset ever. It is also the most boring asset. And, you, and when you post it on Facebook, only like seven people like it. Whereas when you post a new house or a flips house, you get like 200 people to like it. Um, why do you think? Why do you think that is? It, there's zero because people don't understand, or what? what I mean, no, it's I, the, I, I agree. It, it's it's the it's the whole quantum physics. It's the ego. It's the ego. It's the it's the yeah. oh, we could do this to our house. Oh, that's so beautiful. I wish I could. I wish he could do that to my house. You know, storage. Like, how many HGTV shows are about storage? Zero. Like, I was gonna say they didn't do that, storage on storage. Cribs, storage is all freaking made up. There's no <laughs> way in hell that stuff actually happens anywhere in America. That's all like yeah. fabricated. But like you're selling empty space. Yeah, there's, there's, like, dude, I love watching HGTV shows because you take a really ugly house and you make it really pretty. What Joanna Gaines does at houses, which I know she's not on HGTV anymore, but like that, that's incredible. What rent, you know, what these other, I don't watch much of them, so I don't know all the names, but like, you know, what they do to houses, I'm like, man, that's legit. Like, I, I you know, and so there's like this emotional like response, and there's like this dreaming that goes on. Whereas a storage, like, oh, cool, they painted the green. They, they, they painted the uh, overhead doors green. Did you see that one? Did you see that episode? It's a great episode. You know, like it's just boring. <laughs> and so, and, uh, 
And so, so you know, it's like oh, no, it sounds good. <laughs> so it's uh, yeah, I, I would say the thing that I like about stores is it's boring. And my buddy, one of my buddies, uh, who is very very wealthy, owns Jet, owns his own Jet, has taken three or four brands public. Um, boring makes money, is what he says. And so we, we, um, so. It's very consistent. You have 200, 300 tenants per facility. They pay uh, most of the time. Like when we take over a facility, we make them pay ACH or pay through uh, automatic uh, payments, whether that's ACH or through debit cards or credit cards. But they have to pay through automatic debit or automatic payments, um, unless it's like a rural town and they're like those. These people don't have a bank to even get a bank account. You know, we will make them do that. And so by the fifth of every month, you have 98% of your rents and you do, and you realize that utility bill is going to be the same because there's not, um, there's not more usage coming out because no one is ever out of sight. The gate gets used four times a year or four times a month, maybe six times a month. Um, it's just, there's not a lot of expenses. There's no plumbing. So you have no water bill most of the time. Like if we have grass, if we take over a facility and it has grass, it, we're roundupping that crap once a month. That's our new. That's our new line item. You know, there's not going to be a water bill. There's a roundup bill. You know, so and roundup's a lot cheaper than water. And um, and then you only have to do it if, if you have. Thankfully, last year Texas was in a drought. That Texas is where most of our facilities are. And we were able. I think you're the only person in the world that would say that you're thankful for a drought. I mean, that's... well, I'm not thankful for a drought. I'm just saying. Oh, okay. Gotcha. There was a drought last year that we didn't even have to use the roundup bill. So, like, our net margins are higher. That's all I'm saying. It actually sucked for our, my, we own cow. We own some some cows, and we almost had to sell all of them. And so, um, you know, there's various reasons. There's positives, and negatives of a drought, I guess, uh, especially if you're a storage owner. But yeah, you know, and then very little. You have very little maintenance. You might have an overhead door uh, break, and that's two hundred ninety-seven dollars a fix. And you might have that happen once a year. Like there's like literally, I was looking at it. One of our performers of or not a, one of our profit and loss in a facility we we're trying to sell, and it's like two hundred eighty-seven bucks. I'm like, oh, that was a door in March of twenty-two, and that's I know exactly what it is, and there's no other repairs. And so it's just a really streamlined, simple business. Where I was like a multifamily, you might have a hundred units. That's a big multifamily project, but a hundred unit storage facility is easy. But also, like a difference between the operating cost of a six-unit storage facility and a three-hundred unit storage facility is nothing. It's about the same. Like you need one person to run it. Um, you need uh, you're going to have one utility bill, and the utility bill is going to cost the same much. Like the light bill for a six-unit. And a 300 unit is going to be a difference of about 18 bucks. Like it's not much. So, but you have 300 units, and you can lose 30 tenants as opposed to if you lost 30 tenants on a six, seven unit facility, you lose half of it. But on the bigger unit, you just use 10 percent. And all of that is really important because when you're talking about economies of scale and also like really eliminating your downside and and making sure you project your yield correctly to investors, like you want all of those things and. On the multifamily side or the single family home side, like you always have to factor out a big ass maintenance reserve because maintenance is what kills you on those two businesses. Whereas with storage, it's all about receivables. As long as you receive your money uh, in storage, you're gonna be fine the rest, for the rest of the month. And so you might have some issues with staffing, that sort of thing, but generally speaking, as long as you don't get super aggressive on rent increases, you're not gonna lose that many tenants on a monthly month basis. So while I've got you both on here, Kyle's done storage, Travis has done storage, what makes a really good 
storage uh, investment. Go ahead, Tom. We're staring at each other like, who's going to answer first? <laughs> <laughs> Travis is going to be the better person. I, I mean, my storage journey is nothing. It's not even a journey. It was a it was a storage roadside stop <laughs> is what mine was. Storage. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I owned one small facility for about three years, and that was about it. And I, this was before Bigger Pockets and before I, I oh, didn't wow. even know what the hell I was oh. doing. Yeah, this was this was a, my first owner financing deal. This was my my first commercial deal, my first everything. Uh, and and actually, I was going to ask you, Travis. I was going to put you on the clock and ask you if because you know we we've, we've been talking to you for almost an hour now. We want to be mindful of your time, but I, I would like to know from somebody like yourself, who's a lot more big time into the storage space, if you could do a one minute class, one minute on what you look for in purchasing something like a storage facility because I don't think I think most of our listeners are probably residential investors or aspiring residential investors some of them are um, you know commercial people but um, storage is pretty specialized and I don't think a lot of people know you know they don't they don't think about oh well you know price per square footage is a big one you know or how many square feet is a, is a facility is a big one on the uh the storage side. So what do you look for? If you're looking for at looking at a brand new facility or not even a brand new, just a new one to you, what's a good deal? Yeah, I, w- I would say before I get into that, the aspiring from residential to commercial should be what everyone wants to do. The reason why is you go from a, a comparable market approach value to a, a, a income approach value. And so you can make millions and millions and millions of dollars in commercial as opposed to like just accumulating a bunch of houses over and over that'll eventually make you a millionaire but you can force to you can force appreciate a uh, commercial which means you can take a property that's worth two million in 10 months make it worth four million as we have in the past and those are rare but that is totally fine totally doable uh, if i can go back to my residential side my highest net worth ever on paper was 1.4 on the after buying 400 houses like we were just leveraging the crap out of them to get to where we were but, um, you know, my net worth is like six times that now, and I've, only, I've been doing it for less than a half a time. And the reason why is just because we went and we had a good strategy and we're like, we're going to raise rents, we're going to cut costs, and that's going to add a lot of value. We're in a really weird volatile time as far as rates go, and so who knows what my facilities actually are worth. But at one point when rates were consistent, uh, that's, what it, that's what the value would be. So... But what makes a really good storage facility is uh, that another reason why storage is such a specialized and hard to you don't you don't find a lot of storage investors is because it's hard to underwrite Um, because you can't go like, man, if I put countertops in that storage unit, I'm going to get another two hundred dollars a month of rent like your granite countertops. You know, if you put nicer countertops, that that doesn't work in storage. So what you really what we like to look for in Everyone else has a different uh, version of what they choose to focus on, but we like to have under market rents, at least 20%, but that's, uh, that's not enough most of the time. Then we want at least 100 doors. We want at least uh, some expansion space to double the this facility size. So if it's a 400-unit facility already, we're not going to make it 800. That's silly. But if it's 100, we're going to want to make it at least a 200. In my opinion, 200-unit facility is still too small. Um, going back to my comment about a 100-unit facility costs the same amount of money as a 500-unit facility, or I think a 300-unit facility to uh, run and manage. Um, same thing. So we want to make we want to try to get to that 350-unit space if it's not there. 
Uh, additional things that you want to look for is other competition. You want to make sure the competition is full. So if your facility is full and everyone else's facility is full, then there's a good chance you can raise rates, a good amount, because they can't go anywhere. If you call, uh, if you're at 60% economic occupancy and everyone else is at 90% economic occupancy, there's a good chance that your facility is just mismanaged. And so you can probably get that thing up to 80 to 85%. Um, but you want to make sure that whatever you're buying, the juice is worth the squeeze. And the way I, I think the best structure on that is find a, a property that is under market rents and also, and additionally has expansion room. With that, you can make yourself a lot of money. And it, those right. are getting far too, few and far between, but they're still out there, and um, and they're that's totally worth your time. I'm curious because one of the things that. I have never been able to quite get a grasp on is when to know a market is overbuilt. Are we looking exclusively at vacancy? So when you start looking yeah. at your, at your competitors, if they're, you know, 70 or 80% full and that's consistent, mm -hmm. is that when you know, this is, this is a no, this is a no go. Yeah. Pre COVID there was a metric that you looked at. It was per capita per square foot per capita. So if you have a hundred thousand square feet, so, if you have 100,000 people out there and you have 70,000 people, then that's seven square feet per capita. I think I did the math wrong. It might be reverse that. But um, that metric's really been kind of dis, dis, uh, like dis, uh, discarded because it hasn't really worked. So like if you look at Akron, Ohio right now, so typically the across the nation, seven and a half square feet, eight, eight, dollars, or eight, eight square feet per capita is kind of the normal. Well, Akron, Ohio is four and a half square feet per capita, but there's a ton of vacancy. So it's a soft market. Oklahoma City, which is where we have a storage facility, is like 13 uh, square foot per capita. But that sucker is full. Like all of them are full, no matter what happens. And it's also a cheap market, which is the weirdest thing ever. You think it was full, then um, you know that rental rate would go up. But, the reason, but Oklahoma City is easy to build in. So like every year, you get another 10 to 15 storage facilities. But they end up getting full. They end up getting full. Ten by ten is going to get eighty-eight to ninety bucks a foot, or, or eighty-eight to ninety dollars a, a unit, and it's never going to go above that. It's just how it works there for some reason. Um, but I would say a better use, better like uh, like indicator would be what you mentioned, vacancy. So if I'm looking at a facility and all the other facilities are full, like I'm really excited. The one in Oklahoma City we bought, it was full. And the other 36 RV and boat facilities were also full. And in addition to that, our, our rates were like half of what the two closest ones were around us. And we had the expansion room. And so, um, so you know, we're still working on, we doubled rates, lost a lot of vacant, a lot, a lot of occupancy. We're increasing that right now. So we're having to spend a lot of money on marketing. But once, that, once that's full, we'll have taken a facility from 30 grand to now, even at 60% occupancy, it's at 42 grand in revenue. And then uh, when it's full, it'll be at 75 to 80 grand uh, of revenue. And so we're really excited about that one. And then when it's full, we can just go ahead and build some more because we have another 16 acres to build on. And and that should be really, you know, it's an asset we paid 6 million bucks for. It could eventually be worth 30 million. We're really excited about that one. Wow. And so 30 million with a cost of 15 million. And so, um, so, you know, there's a lot of upside on that one. But, yeah, I would say 
for me, when I look at it, if I find something, I kind of, if I'm getting a, if I get an offering memorandum from a broker, I look at the square foot per capita. If it's anywhere close to seven and a half and it's in Texas, I'm like, all right, maybe I should call some of these facilities that are around here. And that was going to be one of my questions. Are, are the, when, when you're doing your due diligence and you're discussing that with these potential competitors, are they free with that information most of the time? Do they tell you, oh, yeah, we're, we're – or do they just always tell you, oh, we're 100% full because they think you're a potential client? Do you call as if you're, in a, you're a tenant? What's your strategy? It, it depends on how you ask it. I typically – when I call them, I'm like, hey, do uh, you guys have tens? I just don't – I don't say who I am. I go, hey, do you have seven 10 by 10s? available and no one as of yet has ever said why that's a lot of tim i think <laughs> it's because they, they got dollar signs in yeah they're like well this guy wants seven. i'm like no no we don't have 10 by 10s we're full but you know we got this 10 by 20 i'm like well how many of those do you have so oh, I just, it's brilliant i don't yeah, ever I, I don't you know and if they ask who i am i'm like oh we just got a project down the street that we need to store some building materials and the reality is we do it's what's called the other facility you know like i'm not gonna lie but, and you know, <laughs> And, uh, and the thing is like, it, it's, you know, the storage industry is, is, is un, it hasn't really caught up with technology. It's starting to, there's some startups out there that are focused on storage. It's also like personnel wise, it's also not caught up because it's a generally like a, I'm retired, I'm bored. I'd like to work at that storage facility and help people and watch, you know, the prices right. Um, or Alex Jones, while no one's in the office, office wanting a ten by ten, and so it, you know, it tend to, or, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna help this person out while I'm taking care of my four-year-old granddaughter or three-year-old granddaughter who's playing in the floor, and so that's typically what it is. It's it, and it's such, I love that because it's such a great like mom and pop business, like real mom and pop. Like there's, it's it's rare that you get some dickhead on the phone who's going to be a jerk to you. You know, I, I, I've also learned like if you call them and they're like, if you're like, Hey, would you sell your facility? They're going to hang up the phone because they, just, they, it's a relationship game. It's just like, um, and it's, it's where that's probably different on the multifamily on the house thing. Um, but yeah, we've, we, I, I used to be afraid to seek your shop, which is what, you know, Hey, do you have any 10 by 10s available? But because I felt like I was just kind of being conniving, but at the same time, like I've learned that it's actually not that bad they're really generous. They're the ones giving you the information. You're not taking anything from them. And honestly, it's really a collaborative industry. So if I'm full and the ABC storage down the street has seven 10 by 10s and I know the owner of ABC storage, I'm going to call him and be like, hey, we're getting a lot of calls for 10 by 10s. If we just refer you, this lady, Mrs. Smith, can you want to just get us first month half, half of the rent? We can just settle up next time I see you. And, and, you know, and that's, that's actually a really good way to, to grow your business and you're helping other people. You're not going to get, you, I don't know, the multifamily space that well, but I don't think you're going to get that with the multifamily space as well as you would with storage. Because storage is simple, man. It's simple. I don't, I, I, I do think it's going to have a ramp, ramp up where like kind of multifamily did where it went from 2012 being mostly mom and pop to like pretty much all corporate owned. I think it will do the same thing from here till whenever, but I think it's always going to be like people who are just good old boys and good old people that aren't, you know, because there's plenty of money in it. Like if someone, if someone calls me and asks me how many 10 by 10s, if I give it to them, it's not like I'm going to lose out on any business because like 
hey, what are you charging for a 10 by 10? Okay, cool. Well, I'm going to start charging 10, 85 bucks for a 10 by 10. That sounds like a great idea. You know, it's like, it's, it's like I didn't realize you could get that much for it. You know, it's, so it's very collaborative. I like that about it. Um, obviously, I might change my mind after a few more years of doing this, but um, it's, you know, it's every, it's the business for me. I really like it. It's, it's a people business, but at the same time, you don't have to deal with people. <laughs> that makes Absolutely. Sense. Uh, so, so what's next for you? What are you working on now? And what do you got planned for the future? Yeah. Oh man. Um, we are, we, we have a ground up facility right now that we are working on raising capital for uh, capital is a little bit more tough to raise in this market. Um, but we'll, I'm pretty hopeful we're going to get it uh, within the next month. We'll build that, and then once we get that closed and funded and starting to build, I'll probably go right back to buying some of the more uh, smaller acquisitions, like the 200, 300 units. We have a storage facility in a, in a market that it, it is always full. We're adding a lot of square feet to it. We've got a res we got a uh, like we have a reserve list for people to call back, and so we know there's a lot of demand. I know several facilities in that market that haven't been repositioned or have you know we can just add that to our brand, and so we'll probably go after that market pretty heavily. Uh, it's a market in South DFW, and so. And what are you trying to What are you trying to raise um, specifically? If any of our listeners can can help you out, because I know yeah. we have some, quite a few investors that listen to this, so kind of pitch that what you got going on and where it's at and what you're looking for. Yeah, we're we're raising uh, four and a half million bucks uh, for a storage facility in Austin, Texas. It's a extra space climate control, um, three story, best in class, the best you can build a storage facility. Uh, managed by Extra Space. It is at the busiest intersection of Georgetown, Texas, which is a suburb of Austin, Texas. The, um, you know, if we're, for every hundred grand, you're probably looking at a two and a half X, meaning a 250% return on your money within five years. Uh, it comes with depreciation. So uh, every, after the first year, we'll get it built. You'll get $24,000 a year in depreciation, or I guess the first year in forced depreciation. And then there'll be some menial uh, depreciation after that. Uh, cash flows should start after it gets stabilized, which is year four, and that should be around an eight percent cash and cash return. Uh, the pref, the preferred return uh, for hundred grand, it's five percent. For two hundred fifty grand, it's eight and a half percent. If you give us over a million dollars, we bump, give you a bonus of a uh, ten percent for the preferred return. Awesome. That's hey, those numbers sound good, right? Um, so the next question is, is we, we ask every guest, but more so, more important this time, right? Uh, Travis, how can people get in touch with you? Sure. You can go to investinstoragedeals.com. And you can also reach out to me at travisbaucom, B-A-U-C-O-M.com. Amazing. And we'll put links in the show notes as well. Um, Travis, I feel like we need to get you back on and talk the full gamut of um, running a storage deal down from from finding it to closing it if, if you're sure. uh, up for that sometime Absolutely. and maybe that's a series Carl. maybe we should have production meetings off air anyway but um, Travis thank you so much so much gold information I've got a ton of notes that I'm going to have to punch up for the, uh, for the show notes absolute pleasure having you on yeah it's been a fun conversation cool and we'll be back next week thank you for listening to the Investories podcast we all have a story. What's yours? The Investories Podcast.